Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast brought to you by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Michael Beller and Derek Van Riper here with you on this Thursday, June 24th, the last Thursday of June, getting ready to get into July. Derek, we're right at about the midway point of the baseball season. So uh, a lot of coming, a lot of going. It's uh, it, it's a fun time of year in this uh, in this league and in the fantasy game for sure. Yeah, there's a bunch of teams that are kind of stuck right in the middle right now. It's hard to tell if they're going to be buyers or sellers. The trade deadlines the next five weeks will be really important to determining which direction they choose. That's going to be exciting for us to follow just from a general baseball standpoint, but also from a fantasy perspective too, because it could lead to some very big names being on the move. Yeah, we're going to get into that exact topic in the second half of the show. And we have one of those teams that could go either way to kick off our beat writer roundup on this episode. It's the Washington Nationals. And to talk Nationals, we bring on our Nationals beat writer, Maria Torres. Maria, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's something we want to talk about with this team, and I'm actually going to save it for a little bit, but could go either way right now with the way they've played 9-1 and one in their last 10 games, starting to get hot. One of the players that we always assume is going to be hot for this team is Juan Soto, and he's been mostly doing Juan Soto things. He's been hitting the ball very hard all season, taking a lot of walks, not striking out at all, but one thing we haven't really seen from him this year is the power. He's been hitting a lot more ground balls than we're used to seeing from him. He's just not getting the ball in the air a ton. Is that something that he's addressed at all, that Davey Martinez or anyone with the team has addressed about getting him back to elevating, getting the ball in the air more and starting to hit for a little bit more power? Yes, it's definitely a topic that's come up, especially like after he went on the injured list because of a shoulder issue. Um, you know, the first few weeks there when he wasn't getting any power, wasn't elevating the ball at all, that was, um, you know, the, the concern was that it was still lingering um and he shut that that shut down that idea and so did dave martinez um but we're and there was like a stretch at the beginning of june that i mean i actually wrote about it i was like okay maybe maybe it's time for soto like he's like breaking out of the slump um and then he promptly like didn't break out of the slump (laughs) um so you know there was a time where it kind of seemed like okay well maybe the issue's behind him doesn't seem to be behind him it's hard to say if it is still a shoulder thing. He said, again, he said it wasn't, but, you know, you, you can't help but wonder if it is. Um, and they've, you know, they've talked about it. Dave, Dave Martinez mostly talked about how important it was for him to keep working on his timing and that his timing was starting to get better at the plate and he was staying behind the ball more. Um, and that, you know, that, that could be the case. But honestly, it's like, you know, you, you know Juan Soto is doing good when he's getting to the opposite field and he hasn't really been doing that. Yeah, it's interesting, though. Juan Soto still has the second-best projected WOBA for the rest of the season. I'm looking at the bat projections that Derek Cardi, who was on the show last week, he puts together. He's right there with Trout and Vlad Jr. and Acuna and all the elite players. So it's at least expected based on the numbers that he's going to come back. But I'm definitely a little concerned because we saw that ground ball rate up in the shortened season, even when things were going exceptionally well for Juan Soto. Uh, from a team perspective, the Nats are in that weird spot that we alluded to up top, they're 35 and 36 entering play on Thursday. The NL East is really condensed right now. The Mets, of course, have this seemingly lingering issue with Jacob deGrom's arm that is kind of there, but they have a five-game lead uh, over the Braves and Phillies, four games up on the Nats as of right now. But Max Scherzer, he's the big name that everyone's curious about, Maria. If the Nats were to fall further away, if they're not hovering around 500 when we get to the trade deadline next month, Is it realistic to think that Max Scherzer will actually get traded? And what would it take for that to even happen? Realistic, sure. Um, It just seems like there's a lot of, like, things that could potentially, like, hamper that. I mean, granted, like, you know, Scherzer is an adult and the Nationals' ownership are adults. Like, they can can hammer out whether or not he can be traded. Um, But it just seems like the contract could be an issue. Like, just the money that's left on the contract, the deferred payments left on that contract could be problematic it also seems like um you know if the nationals really want to keep him around beyond this year could that you know could trading him like end the potential for another conversation to re-sign him um i don't know i don't know the answer to that question but you know it it would behoove the nationals to definitely consider it because you know you'll at least get some i mean i don't you know with because he's a rental player i don't know like how many 
top prospects you can get, but you could probably get a pretty decent package. And the Nationals farm system like really needs an infusion of talent at this point. And if they're really like at a point in the, at the end of July where, you know, um, there's only so much that they can realistically see themselves doing. Like, I don't, I just think like they should probably, they should probably like just pull the trigger on that. Um, euphemistically, of course. And, and, um, you know, just kind of kickstart the, the farm system again. You've got a few teams certainly in the in the uh, contending ranks who are going to be looking for starting pitching help who maybe could meet the Nationals' asking price. A couple in the AL East come to mind right away in the Red Sox and the Yankees. Let's stick on that uh, discussion for just a second here. Again, before this 9-1 stretch, uh, it seemed like the Nationals were pretty comfortably headed towards Sellerland. Now they've done what they've done. The Mets have gone 4-6 and six in that same span. So uh, the Nats are definitely back in the NL East. But let's just say that over the next couple of weeks, things unravel for them and they do end up falling out of it. Who else on this team besides Scherzer are we going to hear bandied about in trade talks? I think you could hear Schwarber possibly bandied about in trade talks. Um, I'm not sure yet about Josh Bell, but he could he could be a name that could be out there for sure, especially if he kind of can really ride this wave that he's on at the moment. Um, the last 12 games, he's done really well. And um, there's also, I mean, John Lester, you know, veteran mm-hmm. starter who's at least going to give you five pretty good innings. And um, that's, you know, that's important, obviously, for a team in, in the playoffs or trying to get in the playoffs to have that depth. Um, you know, and then from the relief standpoint, Brad Hand, uh, Daniel Hudson, assuming he comes back healthy um, in the next few weeks. Anyone on an expiring contract? <laughs> Jan Gomes, uh, Avila, Alex Avila. I mean, honestly, like, the, I, I would say, like, probably the whole, like, almost the entire, like, team is could be up for sale yeah <laughs> Minus, a lot of, those... of course like robles and soto and trey turner right. i mean i don't think i don't think they would trade victor robles anyway there's too much left too many years of control left yeah and moving him at a relative low point too i think yeah. if they were to do something like that I, I like this core i mean i think when you have a an all-world sort of player like soto that alone gives you reasons for optimism but they still have a few years left with turner I am a Victor Robles apologist at every single turn. I am yes. so wrong about him this season that it's very frustrating. But both Bell and Schwarber, who you mentioned, have really been on a tear going back to about mid-May. Was there anything that spurred their respective turnarounds? Was there a moment where they stepped back and pushed pause or anything that, that you noticed that enabled them to get back on track and start playing more like the, the hitters we expect them to be? I think for Bell, that moment came, and actually for Schwarber too, although more so lately, um, for Bell, that moment came in early May. Um, I can't remember the dates right now, um, naturally, because baseball is a long season, but <laughs> there was, it was, I think it was right after they played the Yankees and before the end of a series against the Phillies where he got a day off. Um, and he said he spent like, I don't remember now how much time. It seemed like a lot of time or a little bit of time. It was like one extreme or the other, um, just working on the cage on one specific drill uh, with, with the hitting coaches. And after that, um, you know, it kind of like, you know, just kind of came to fruition, like the work that he had been doing. And it started to t- started to pick up his, his production. And um, like you mentioned, he's been going on a – he's been pretty decent for the last month or so, although more so I think in the last – um, you know, week plus things have really started to pick up for him. He started, he felt like at the beginning of, or maybe even the, it was last week. I think he talked about how he felt like he was treading water. Um, like he didn't feel like he was sinking yet. He, he said those words. He didn't feel like he was sinking yet, but he felt like he was still treading water because there's still, he still just hadn't unlocked like all of his ability to hit against fastballs. I think that was like his main, um, his main focus at that time. And these, in this last week, um, he said this continued work with the hitting coaches has, has really helped him kind of, you know, figure a little bit more of that out. And so he thinks that he's, he can bottle up a little bit more of that energy and kind of like keep going on this track that he's on. Um, with Schwarber, I think I, I, I mean, I picked up at the beginning of May, um, you know, his at bats were just a little bit better. Just seeing a little bit more pitches, um, wasn't swinging as much outside of the zone. And I think that's, and when he was swinging outside of the zone, making more contact on those pitches. So I think that was mostly just a product of him, um, again, he, he said that it was mostly just a product of him continuing to work with the hitting coaches. And of late, he, um, you know, d- during this current like streak that he's on, um, he mentioned that, you know, he started working off the high tee a little bit more with the coaches. So, you know, having the ball like just above the strike zone um, would be. And so that he would hit off the tee that way. Um, and it's helped him keep his back like a little flatter to the ball. And um, I mean, 
you've seen it on several home runs of his during this stretch where, you know, he's gone after the high fastball, like super high fastball and he's connected and it's gone. And, um, it seems like that, that, that drill is really working for him. I'm not sure if it's something that he's done before. Unfortunately, I haven't asked him that, that yet, but, um, I think it's really interesting that that's, you know, that's kind of like the key to the, to the stretch right now to me, I think. Definitely very uh, encouraging to see that from Kyle Schwarber, a guy who really struggled with high fastballs uh, last year with the Cubs and in 2019, and something that he talked about a bit. So good to see him catching up to that pitch. Also good to see Brett Hand getting things right in the ninth inning. This was a guy who had his uh, fair share of struggles early on in the season, and in the fantasy world, we were actually a little concerned about Daniel Hudson potentially stealing the closer's job from him. Obviously, Hudson now on the IL, but... Even if Hudson weren't on the IL, Hand has definitely uh, looked like the closer the Nationals thought they were getting. Is there any real threat to him absent Hudson getting back and getting stronger? Are we thinking Brad Hand is the guy for the Nationals? Yeah, at this point, I definitely don't see things changing on that front unless he's just down and he can't go pitch that mm-hmm. day. Like like uh, Wednesday's game, he wasn't available because he threw 30-something pitches the night before. Um, so unless he's unavailable, I don't see why he wouldn't be closing out games for the nationals for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, like you mentioned, like he's just, he's just really kind of, he said he's one of those guys who tends to pitch better the more he pitches. Um, so he's probably just like finally settling, settling into the season. Um, you know, fastball's coming up, slider is doing better. Um, you know, he isn't without his like scary moments. Tuesday's game was not, (laughs) it was not a great game for Brad hand. I mean, but he did eventually shut it down. Um, so yeah, I mean, right now the options for the end of the game for the Nationals right now are just kind of like Harry, um, Sam Clay, rookie reliever. He's done pretty well. He's been, you know, entrusted with, um, some high leverage spots and generally been okay in those spots, but he's still a rookie reliever. He's still learning. Um, Kyle Finnegan's now hurt, so he's not really an option. Tanner Rainey is one to look out for. I think he's like done really well in the last month now, like since he came off the, the COVID IL. Um, you know, he's kind of figured out how to pitch with his fastball a little bit more, although his slider usage is a little down. Um, but his fastball velocity is back up, which which is huge because it was not up for him at the beginning of the season, and that was seeming to that was causing a lot of angst both in the fandom and with Tanner Rainey. So um, I think I think things you know if if it comes down to it, like Tanner Rainey could definitely step into a role like that, um, and you know that's what the Nationals want him to be eventually, right? So maybe. You know, maybe, I mean, that's obviously a good sign, but for the time being, I think it's just Brad Hand. Yeah, I do think Rainey is the most interesting of the other relievers if something happens to Hand, be that a trade or an injury or something at some point in the second half. I want to ask you about Steven Strasburg, Maria. It just seems like he's not making a lot of progress. Where do things stand, and is there even a, a loose timetable for when we may see him pitching in a game for the Nats again? Great question. No one knows the answer to, or at least no one's telling us the answer. Um, yeah, so Strasburg starting, started a throwing program at the end of last week, so that was an encouraging sign because he'd been down for, I guess at that point it was two and a half weeks or so because of the neck nerve issue that he's having. Um, I the, the idea is for him to continue to just build up his arm, you know, being down for two and a half weeks. And someone who had already been down in the season, you, at this point, you do kind of need a lot of a lot of buildup period or a long buildup period. So, you know, if things, I would I would imagine that if you know the things go smoothly, and again, I'm completely speculating here. I would imagine that if things go like smoothly in the next few weeks, like maybe he can make a rehab start right before the All Star break, and then maybe come back after the All Star break. Just you know, given the timing, there's not enough time left for him to get enough. I don't think there's enough time for him to get enough innings and come back before the All-Star break, I think. All right, that's our Nationals beat writer, Maria Torres, with all the good stuff on this suddenly contending Nationals team. Maria, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, back to the show here. Derek Van Riper still with me. And our next beat writer on this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast is James Fegan. James covers the Chicago White Sox for us here at the Athletic. James, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for waking me up. <laughs> you get, it's nine thirty in the morning, James, in the Central Time Zone. Come, you're 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 welcome. You're welcome. For I mean, I've been up. up two hours, but it's it's a stages <laughs> of reawakening that you go through. It, the process won't keep you complete till three p.m. And at which point, I'll start going to bed very slowly over the course of nine hours. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm happy we've got you when you're good and fresh here in the morning. Uh, we were just talking with Maria Torres, and uh, the Nationals are a team that. You know, we could see go either way in terms of the buy-sell discussion. The White Sox, certainly not a team that is going to go either way. This team is buyers, and this team, as good as it's been, definitely could use some help, and I would say especially in their lineup with all the injuries that they've had to deal with. The latest of which Nick Madrigal definitely has shined a spotlight on this team's needs at second base. So as we get ready, get geared up for the MLB trade deadline, who are we looking at as some realistic trade targets for this White Sox team? Um, I mean, I said it at a pretty low level because their um, basically their prospect capital isn't very high. I think when uh, their fans talk about Kettle Marte, they they forget that like basically the pieces to do get that or retrieve that are all playing major league roles right now. You know, the type of impact talent that people talk about is, is stuff that people would ask for Mecca Kopech and Andrew Vaughn for. And uh, those are guys that the White Sox clung, clung to desperately throughout this process uh, before they were the starting everyday left fielder or before they were kind of an essential piece of the bullpen. Um, someone who has a, you know, marked out rotation spot next year the way Kopech does. Um, so I, I think the... The, the level that people have been talking about of, you know, Eduardo Escobar who's on an expiring deal or um, I think Adam Frazier being like maybe, you know, with his extra year control, possibly the pinnacle of what they could, um, could reach out for. Uh, that, that seems more like the ceiling. Um, you know, your number one prospect right now, you know, I think by MLB.com is, uh, is it Jared Kelly. Uh, I think that might be somewhat similar. I think Keith Law probably has Matthew Thompson, and I agree with him in that aspect of ranked higher, looking at his preseason list. But these are essentially, you know, arms that were drafted at a high school in the past two years who have scant professional experience and, like, aren't dominating yet. And, you know, it's understandable that they wouldn't be, given that they're in the low minors and they didn't have rookie ball or stuff like that to adjust to. But, like, there's not, like, some stud who's tearing up the, their farm system that they can, like, point to and, and really fence and sell for a high value. And certainly no one really close to the majors who uh, offers that kind of impact talent. So they really have to look at the, you know, guys who are somewhat reserves or uh, stop gaps, and especially when you're talking about second base. Um, you know, Rick Hahn is very adamant that Nick Madrigal is still their second baseman of the future. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think one of the reasons that Frazier might work is that they could push him to the outfield next season. Um, since, you know, there's, there's no sign that their issues with solving right field are, are anticipating anytime soon. Um, so it's, it's really looking for guys who kind of serve the immediate, um, one year need both because they don't want to sell the major pieces that they would need for a guy with multiple years control. And also just, they don't have them to spare. The other kind of important factor here is I think compared to what happened after the injury with Eloy Jimenez, it seems like he's progressing pretty well toward a return at some point in the second half. So maybe that's one less hole they have to fill. If we can assume he comes back healthy where is he at progress-wise right now, James? Is it still realistic to see him maybe in August playing in games again? Yeah, it's realistic. Um, I think there's a temptation, especially once he got cleared for baseball activities uh, you know, last week or the week before that, within the last 10 days, um, that it's kind of fait accompli. And it's it's not quite since you know the whole thing that he has to do is 
you know, with the, the tear in his, uh, you know, abdominal tendon, is that something he's going to feel or, you know, could feel while extending his swing and obviously is a big leverage swing. So that still kind of has to be put to the test progressively. Obviously, things are looking good. You know, he could be on a rehab assignment, you know, in July. It should be an extended one, given that he hasn't played in a while. But certainly the schedule is moving along well, and that does, um, you know, solve one of your issues with your power bat. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember where people were like, uh, you know, where is he going to play since Yermin Mercedes now is an everyday guy as opposed <laughs> to someone who's uh, slugging under 300 since May 1st. So it, it, he's definitely filling more of a, a need than, you know, surplus. And uh, I, I think the same thing goes with uh, when if, if ever Luis Robert is able to make it back. Um, they, they were actually, you know, more optimistic about him than Eloy when that injury first occurred, given the fact that, like, there, there wasn't a major surgery needed. But, um, yeah, <laughs> they literally have their five best outfielders all on the injured list right now. Um, you know, most teams have five outfielders on a roster. So <laughs> everything is just um, kind of filling desperation. There's no point they get to where they, it, they're disincentivized from adding an outfielder because they've just had so much uh, lost. Even if you know Amendes and Robert are coming back, um, you probably need some more guys. Yeah, I don't think any of us expected that we'd be talking about the White Sox as a team that was struggling with power, and they frankly have been. And one of the interesting parts of that is Yoan Moncada, 399 OBP, but just a 395 slugging percentage, just five homers on this season. This is a guy who slugged 548 back in 2019. Is there any explaining where his power has gone, especially when you consider that overall he's still been a very important offensive player for this team, getting on base as much as he has, but we just haven't seen any real pop from him this year yeah him and Yasmani Grandal have both been doing this uh this weird thing of what's the highest slugging percentage someone can have while having a higher OBP uh <laughs> than what they're doing I find it personally fascinating but the White Sox probably <laughs> uh would love some more slug there's a variety of factors I mean um Basically, we saw all of Mankata's power disappear, or most of it, um, last season as the lingering effects of, of COVID. So the, the big question as he was coming back from that was how physically was he going to return to normal? Um, he said he felt great, uh, I, I think when I talked to him in December or January. You know, one of those winter months where you're desperate for a story. And, you know, he, he, he seemed fine spring training. He moves around uh, the way he does uh, again, even though he's no longer a base-stealing threat. Um, you know, he's recently been dealing with a science affection that he, um, said gave him a lot of the similar symptoms of the same feelings of like weakness and low energy they dealt with last season. And he's been kind of playing through it. And with all the injuries they've dealt with and having, uh, Jimenez and Robert down, you know, playing through it is a, is a phrase that's been used with Mankata a lot in terms of just like, you know, everyone whispering that he's playing through nagging injuries and that he's kind of doing it out of necessity because the lineup doesn't really have anything if he sits out um, or if Abreu doesn't play through nagging injuries or if Tim Anderson doesn't play through nagging injuries. Uh, so there's, there's some explanation there, but, you know, the exit velo hasn't really returned uh, to the same level. It's still good, but it's not what he was doing in 2019 um, all season. Uh, he's had a number of of balls where he's kind of, I don't know, pimped it a little bit and then found it was like a ground rule double um, because, you know, the, it seems like the, he's getting the same quality of contact and it's not going as far. Um, you know, I don't know if that's a reflection of just the ball being deadened or, you know, just not having the same strength that, you know, he is used to having a, or, you know, what really fueled his kind of 25-run home run power. There seems to be a variety of things kind of going on. Um, I still think when... He's swinging with loft and he connects and it's well, it, it looks pretty good and it looks pretty undeniable. And I would, I would expect some sort of bounce back in the second half to a higher level, even if it's not, you know, magically dragging himself up to 20 home runs. But uh, there, there's, there's whispers of like factors uh, here and there that make you think like, all right, maybe this is just he's not going to get back to the same level of pop that he had in 2019 uh, because, you know, there, there's so many things he's dealing with physically. James, I wanted to ask you about Carlos Rodon. He had that no-hitter back on April 14th, and I thought, this is a great story, but this is probably the high point of this great story, and his entire first half has been great. He has not had a start this year where he's failed to go at least five innings. He's still missing a lot of bats. Uh, what are you seeing deep into June now that gives you some hope that maybe 
he will continue something close to this level. I don't know if anyone can expect a sub two ERA all season long, but is it foolish to expect anything resembling what he's done to this point? Or do you think it's actually possible he could sustain it? I mean, I, I, yeah, I can't say he's going to do a sub two or ERA. Um, but the thing about the no hitter that's funny is that like he didn't, it didn't look like a good Carlos Rodon start. Um, like he didn't strike out anybody in the first three innings. And at that point in the night covering that game, you know, the big thing that we were all paying attention to is like the offense, I think, like, uh, you know, ambushed like Zach Plezak for like six runs in the first inning. And the offense had been going through a slow point. Um, that seemed like the story of the game. You didn't even notice that Carlos Redon had a no hitter going because he wasn't blowing guys away. Uh, it was just a bad Cleveland offense hitting into outs. And you look up at the fourth, fifth inning and, um, you know, he has what he has. And he didn't. You know, a normal Carlos Rodon start, you know, before the season was the slider, uh, you know, getting everybody swinging the dirt, or maybe he was having a really good night with this changeup. What he was doing without that stuff working that night and what's sustainable for him or what's different is that he was just challenging guys with his fastball and they could not, uh, keep up with it and not hang with it. It's this increased level of velocity and power and ride that he has, um, from the left side that you really don't see. Like, yes, we're living in an age. Uh, where everybody can throw a hundred, but Rodon does that deep in the starts and uh, as a lefty in a way that is, is still pretty rare to see. And it's not like the high spin fastball. He hasn't really seen any kind of spin rate jump, uh, from last year, but all the mechanical stuff he's done to kind of straighten it out and, and reduce the level of cut of it and, and increase his command of it, uh, in the zone has really just kind of taken off. So, uh, the thing that I think will carry him is that he doesn't have to be perfect. He doesn't have to have perfect feel of his breaking pitches. He doesn't have to be dotting the corners. He can really just has this tool, this kind of blunt weapon on nights where he's not great, and he can he can turn to it reliably. So it it, it kind of takes the margin of error a little bit higher for him, uh, you know, because we've literally seen him throw a no hitter without having feel for his slider. One of the back foot sliders he tried through the throw that night, clipped Roberto Perez literally in the back foot. So. <laughs> the nights where he does have a slider, um, you know, he, he, he's a threat to do that stuff again against, you know, even better lineups in Cleveland. Um, definitely thought a couple weeks ago I was about to cover his second no-hitter of the season. And the fact we have three months left. Mm-hmm. Um, to, I'm basically worried every time he pitches is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, you know, the, the one thing that the White Sox uh, can take a lot of solace in, I think, other than the fact that they're in first place and all that good stuff, is that their best pitcher on paper has maybe been their third best pitcher to this point of the season. And that, of course, is Lucas Giolito. Uh, changeup usage has really increased this year. And just looking at the uh, StatCast numbers, it's the four-seamer that seems to be getting him in trouble. He's given up a 413 slug and a 517x slug with the pitch. Compare that in 2019 to 364 and 369. So is there a way that Giolito gets the gear back and we can change this lower third here and he is great, not just merely good the way he's been to this point of the season? Yeah, I think so. I think he's probably feeling physically better at this point in the year than he was uh, in April when he saw like his velo kind of going up and down. Um, you know, he's still not really happy with his fastball command at this point, and um, he, he thinks he's probably closer to figuring it out. He, he was he was dealing with some stuff mechanically that they they uh, they kind of tweaked with him and Ethan Katz. Uh, you know, in their what now fifteenth year of working together at this point. Um, that, that, that they've felt better about since mid-May the, to make you think that the, the fastball can be more consistent. He's really, I would say, I wouldn't know if he's really going to up the usage of it um, beyond what he's currently doing. He's just trying to find more tools to kind of take heat off of it. He's really started using a really hard curveball um, uh, as kind of an occasional wipeout pitch the last couple outings, and I think the more he kind of feels comfortable with it, the more it's something he can really uh, tunnel off and bury, um, that's only going to help him a little bit and, and, uh, you know, take some pressure off his fastball when he does maybe, you know, is not perfect with the location. So yeah, I, I think there's definitely levels to, to reach with the Giolito. I don't think he's physically diminished or, um, you know, seen something with his stuff back up that he can't get back to the guy the last two years. First place White Sox, a great team in real life and a fun team for us to watch in the fantasy world as well. That's James Fegan, our White Sox beat reporter here at The Athletic. James, thanks again for joining us today. My pleasure.
All right, DVR, just you and me the rest of the way. Let's bring this show home. And we talked about this at the top. We talked about it a little bit with Maria. We talked about it a little bit with James. Trade discussions in Major League Baseball are going to be a major feature of the entire landscape of what we talk about from today, June 24th, all the way through the trade deadline, which is July 30th this year, July 30th with uh, the 31st coming on a weekend. So we've got five weeks or so of trade talks and we know this has an impact in the fantasy game as well. And some things are obvious and some things are a little bit less obvious as to how the MLB trade deadline affects what we do in the fantasy world. So I think it is I think it makes sense to just sort of set the table as to what we are looking for in the fantasy world as we consider the MLB trade deadline. You're a great fantasy player, DVR. We all know it. What's something, what's what's one of the, maybe the first thing that comes into your mind that you're looking for when you are thinking about the MLB trade deadline and how you are going to attack it in your fantasy leagues? So the biggest thing that I look for is I'm looking for the obvious names who are going to move so I can track who is likely to get opportunities because of it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think When we're talking about Max Scherzer or any other big-name player, even Adam Frazier, someone who plays every day, has a steady role, we've got a good feel for what they can do as a player. Yes, changing teams can make them more interesting. Going to a contender can help a pitcher win more games, potentially. Uh, Going to a more pitcher-friendly environment can help ratios. Going to a more hitter-friendly environment could help offensive production. Being in a better offensive lineup could help the counting stats, but... The biggest shift in value fantasy-wise oftentimes comes from the players or player, if it's one for one, taking over that spot, who end up playing more as a result of that player's departure. Because as we know, a lot of times we're talking about prospects coming back as the return for established veterans. Those are guys who are not picking up those innings and not picking up those at-bats. So it's somebody else either in the upper levels of the system right now or somebody who's been a backup or maybe a swingman. Or maybe it's someone, if we're talking about closers, who's been working the seventh or the eighth inning, right? That's where, like for me, this is the time of year where you want to check in on a guy like Tanner Rainey, who Maria mentioned and say, is he their best option if things go wrong and they trade Brad Hand? And what you do with that information this early, it's not necessarily a case where you're going after all of those players and trying to pick them up now, but you are starting to figure out, are they playing enough to be used in the leagues that I'm in already? If you're an NL only league and... There's a guy playing once or twice a week right now who you think could play four more times per week later. Yes, you would pick that player up now if available because that kind of shift is is massive. Uh, whereas in a mixed league, you know, you're going to be a little more cautious. You're going to do these, make these moves actually a little closer to the deadline itself. So that's what I'm looking at the most. I'm looking at the depth charts of the teams that are expected to move players and who is most likely to benefit. Uh, it, I'm also trying to imagine the realistic trade scenarios just to make sure that there isn't a piece coming back who can fill that spot. Sometimes that happens. You trade an expiring contract to get a younger player back. It happens that the younger player can actually help fill the void. But more often than not, it is someone internal getting that opportunity. Yeah, it, it's really the sellers who are the more imp- more interesting teams in the fantasy world. We focus on the buyers just as baseball fans and in the baseball discussion. That's who we talk about. We talk about the Yankees swinging a big trade for Max Scherzer. We talk about the White Sox going out and getting someone, perhaps like Adam Frazier or Eduardo Escobar. And I think that would be a boon to those players should they get to, you know, suddenly Adam Frazier leaves behind the Pittsburgh lineup and is playing every single day in the White Sox lineup, that would obviously be good for Adam Frazier. But it's the sellers who become the more interesting teams to look at in the fantasy world because now we're suddenly talking about guys who are going from being part-time players to being everyday players. Adam Frazier's already an everyday player. He gets a little bit of a boost from going to the White Sox, going to the Pirates to the White Sox, but he's still an everyday player. It's not like it's that much of a boost in the fantasy world. The person who maybe gets the boost is someone who fills in, who was barely playing for Pittsburgh and now is playing every day because Adam Frazier is gone. So I think we need to look at the sellers and think about the more interesting players there. And the first team, and really, the I guess Arizona jumps out, but not really sure what to think about their players. On an episode of Fantasy Baseball in 15 earlier this week, Al and I were talking about the Tigers. And the Tigers, we figure uh, to be a team that is going to be making some moves. Could see Robbie Grossman on the move. Could see Jonathan Scope on the move. And you look at the rest of that team, and they already have a number of guys who we've talked about 
in the fantasy world, Akil Badu has reemerged here. He had that lull in May, and he's starting to see him get back to the player he was in April. You and I have talked about Isak Paredes a handful of times, and it just feels like these guys in Detroit especially, and maybe there's a few other teams, but this is the first one that comes to mind to me, Detroit especially has these guys who have had playing time concerns and have been you know, anywhere between passable and legitimately good on a per game basis, but haven't had enough games to take full advantage of that in the fantasy world. And I think that changes for these guys. So like Akil Badu to me becomes someone who is incredibly interesting to grab right now. And he has seen his roster rates drop into like the high single digits or low double digits. And this is someone who I think we can act on now knowing that, I mean, he is going to be, I will be stunned DVR if Akil Badu is not an everyday player for the Tigers in the second half of the season. Yeah, I mean, maybe depending on who's left, they have somebody else they want to play against some lefties. But I think if you're the Tigers, you want to give Akil Badu a chance to see left-handed Major League pitching because this season does not matter for you in terms of wins. And you're talking about a guy that could be an important part of your future. It's so much easier to assess a player like Badu, relatively speaking, now than it was when he was kind of breaking the league or was the story of the of the year for the first couple of weeks as one of the most intriguing rookies, right? Because we've just got a bet, much better snapshot. And sure, 177 plate appearances, that's not the complete picture either. But you just have a little more confidence going into this saying, yeah, actually, Badu's playing probably about 85 to 90% of the time already. That playing time share could jump even further. Even if it doesn't, he's playing enough to go ahead and make that move now. And their incentives to play him more are only going to increase the further we go into the season. So I do like the power-speed combo there. Clearly a guy that can take his share of walks. And I think I would also look at him and say a 30% K rate is probably not where he's going to be long-term. I mean, think about the time he missed with injury in the minors, the pandemic year is the lost year for everybody. He made the leap from high A to the big leagues when it's all said and done. And he wasn't even at high A that long. So I, I know he was striking out at that level when we last saw him in Minnesota two years ago, but that's probably not who he is as a player. Someone who walks that much at that age usually doesn't strike out that much. Sometimes it can happen, of course. You can have those three true outcome sort of players. But when you watch Akil Badu, you don't see a guy who's over-aggressive without a, without a sense of how to judge uh, good pitches, right? Like he, he seems like he has some, some underlying skills that are going to enable him to do even better in terms of making more contact going forward. Looking around the league at the rest of the last place teams and teams that aren't going to be contending, obviously that's where we're going to find some sellers. And you've got I, I can't I can't believe Baltimore is as bad as they are, given how many good offensive seasons they've had from Cedric Mullins and Trey Mancini and uh, you know Brian Mountcastle for power and DJ Stewart, but whatever. You got Baltimore, you've got Minnesota, you've got the Rangers, you've got the D backs and the Rockies, you've got the Pirates, the Marlins. Maybe the Phillies ultimately become sellers. They're sitting three games under 500, and the NL East is stacked up, and they could do what the Nationals have done and go on a 9-1 and stretch, and suddenly they're right back in this thing. But maybe they become sellers. You've got also the Royals in the AL Central. Is there anyone from those teams that you think about, you know, if if player X gets traded, player Y is going to be really interesting in the fantasy world? Does anyone immediately come to mind for you? Yeah, I think the Marlins have a lot of young outfielders that are interesting. They already brought up Jesus Sanchez, but I can't really imagine that Corey Dickerson of Healthy is still on the team after the deadline. Yes. Uh, Garrett Cooper is another guy that would be interesting to other clubs. Starling Marte seems like a player that wants to stay in Miami, but they might find that they can do pretty well in a trade and possibly go back and re-sign him in the offseason if they want him. Adam Duvall could be gone, so they could clear a lot of spots in that outfield, and I'm really curious to see what Monty Harrison would do with more regular playing time. He's more of a deep league sort of player, but you look at him, maybe Lewis Brinson. I think at this point, though, it's probably time for Brinson to get another start in a new organization before that happens. But Monty Harrison has power, has speed, does have a lot of swing and miss in his game right now. But I'm more confident in him than I am in a lot of players who strike out this much, in part because Harrison was a legitimate, great two-sport athlete up until he was drafted by the Brewers. He had a chance to go play football at the University of Nebraska. Anyway, it's all a long way of saying, like, I think 
he could be one of those guys that has a few things click a little further into his career, like just because of that. Not, he was still drafted out of high school, so he's had a lot of time, a lot of reps, but the tools are so good that the Marlins have to be tempted to give him playing time, right? So J.J. Blade is another guy that I thought maybe could get a chance in Miami this season too. It's just looking for those those spots where the trade pieces, even if they don't bring the team back much, they're so obvious because they're at least bench upgrades for a contender. Those are layup right. opportunities to open up a lot of playing time. Yeah, I think that's going to be a, a really active team. And a, because of the fact that all those guys, I mean, think, think of all those guys you just listed, Corey Dickerson and Adam Duvall. I mean, those are guys who are going to be interesting to contending teams, who they're going to want to add. And I think that's why what, what makes the Marlins so interesting. I mean, you can throw Arizona in there too with Eduardo Escobar. A lot of teams would be very happy to have Eduardo Escobar on their team if a team does have enough to pull off a Cattell Marte deal. You know, that's another guy who a lot of content, basically every contending team could find a way to use Cattell Marte. So even though these teams have been so out of the playoff discussion, they're suddenly going to become very interesting teams. And it's truer for some than it is for others. And I look at the Twins, a team that I, you know none of us really expected to be in the cell discussion uh, back in March, but that's where they find themselves. I wonder sort of what they're actually going to trade away. I mean, Nelson Cruz, I think, would be an obvious trade candidate. Obviously, he's going to have to stay in the American League. I mean, I think some of their other guys are guys that they want to keep around. Like, I don't, they definitely don't want to trade Kirilov. Uh, I don't think they want to trade Luisa Rise. Maybe Josh Donaldson is someone who they ultimately engage on trade discussions, but that's a team that, even though the, the, where they sit in the standings makes them obvious sellers. I'm not sure exactly who goes on the move, and I'm less sure as to who becomes a major benefiter in our fantasy game. Yeah, I mean, Nelson Cruz, you mentioned maybe Oakland. It's, it's just hard to find a fit yeah. for a DH in yeah. any case because a lot of good teams that score plenty of runs are set there, right? So you look at the you know, teams. teams build themselves to have a DH. Right. I mean, the White Sox, once they are healthy, will have that spot covered, and you know, Yermi and Mercedes is holding that down now but jd martinez has that role for the red sox you know, the astros have jordan alvarez in that spot uh, the yankees don't really want to put giancarlo stanton in the outfield enough to trade for a guy like nelson cruz so the best al teams that you could look at they could say okay that that sort of makes sense are the a's and rays which you know it's a better situation than he's in in minnesota but it doesn't change his fantasy outlook all that much um, i don't think you mentioned the royals as one of the other teams that that could be yeah. moving some players. The guy that's kind of interesting there is someone at Double A right now, Nick Prado, one of their prospects. He has completely turned things around after a disappointing 2019 that he spent at high A. He's lowered his K rate with the promotion, showing a ton of power. 12 homers in 40 games at Double A this season, just 22, so he's not really old for the level. Is a fly ball machine. Like he could be an impact cornerback. And if they make the right moves, like he's easily a guy that could be on their radar for a late season call up. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a good call there, and uh, a team that is going to be uh, having a lot of players getting calls on, and have to imagine that you know this is the year. maybe this is finally the year they trade Whit Merrifield. <laughs> Who knows? Right, they get calls on him every single year. Maybe this is uh, the year that it happens. Someone else who we know is um, maybe the best player we could bet on getting moved before the deadline is Trevor Story, and part of what we love about Trevor Story is that he gets to play half his games at Coors. I have this written out as hitters who could leave great environments, but really we're focused on Trevor Story here. If you are a just, if you are a Trevor Story manager, are you feeling motivated to move him, expecting him to get bumped out of Coors? If you are a potential Trevor Story acquirer, does that concern you at all? He had the two-homer game in Seattle yesterday. Uh, we haven't seen a ton of power from him this year. That was just homer number seven and eight, still stealing a ton of bases. We obviously know Trevor Story is uh, one of the best power speed guys in the majors, but how does a potential trade, or I guess maybe a better way to phrase it is, does a potential trade from Colorado change the way you look at him as a player? I don't think so. I think Story is a good enough player that the challenges we see for Colorado hitters having to go on the road and just the, the differences in how the ball moves and it, that not being a factor anymore getting out of Colorado is actually a pretty big deal right we've seen it with DJ LeMahieu we've seen it with Nolan Arenado and I think Story 
is more like those guys. I think he strikes out more than both of those guys do, but he's more like them in terms of being a high quality player. This is not yeah. uh, this. You know, these aren't the the Garrett Atkins, Seth Smith Rockies of ten plus years ago. Sorry to those Clint guys. <laughs> right, like the, the those guys leaving was like okay. Clearly, they're reaping the massive benefits of this park, and they're probably pretty clearly below average players in most other environments. That's definitely not true for me with Trevor Story. And I think the other thing you have to keep in mind is that the Rockies, even at home for most of the season, have been an atrocious offense. That is a bad yes. team. That is a bad supporting cast. He and the other players around him, the other good Rockies hitters, are not getting that typical lift to their counting stats because the core is just bad. I mean, Charlie Blackman's not peak Charlie Blackman anymore. That's part of the problem. But they're a legitimately bad lineup. And I think Anywhere he goes is an upgrade, and most contenders he would go to are massive upgrades. So even if you're worried about maybe the power not being where it was at his peak, he does still steal bases like you mentioned. I wouldn't be surprised that the average actually ended up being better than expected because we've seen him lower the K rate in recent years, and the counting stats should go significantly up on a per-game basis getting away from that rocky supporting cast. Yeah, maybe a way to go get Trevor's story is to uh, play up the fact that he's going to be potentially leaving cores, and maybe that makes uh, his current manager more amenable to a trade. Uh, there's one more thing I want to talk about here uh, before we wrap up this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast on this same trade discussion. You mentioned it right off the top, something that we're always looking at at this time of year, end of June. We know the trade deadline is coming. Closers, who could be on the move, and the guys who would fill in for them if they are indeed on the move. Who's already on the radar for you as a closer in waiting? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because some of these teams are so bad in the bullpen, there isn't necessarily one option that you really like. I would say of the teams you mentioned before, though, the Rangers kind of intrigue me. We've talked about Demarcus Evans, I think, on the mm -hmm. Under the Radar episodes of this show going back to, wow, was that even... Was that year one of the pod? Was that 2019 or was that <laughs> around this time last year? Uh, Demarcus Evans is just one of these guys that has put up some sick numbers in the minors. And mm -hmm. it's just about getting him an opportunity. And I realize we're talking about a guy who has a 868 ERA and a 193 whip, but it's less than 10 innings so far this season. He could miss bats. He's shown us that in the minors at pretty much every stop. Has the typical electric stuff with a high walk rate sort of profile. Uh, but prior to the shortened season, had never really had an issue with home runs. So I don't really look at what's happened in about 20 innings going back to last season and say, DeMarcus Evans has a home run problem. I think he's kind of sneakily one of the more interesting candidates to take over a role uh, if the Rangers you know, send Ian Kennedy to a contender, which seems like it's pretty much a certainty, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it definitely does. I mean, he feels like... One of the guys who's basically guaranteed to be traded. We just saw Joely Rodriguez get a save yesterday, and I want to say did did um did yeah, Levi Weaver when we had him on a couple of weeks ago on this very show. He said that right. He was it was those two guys who he highlighted as the most likely to become the Rangers closer should Ian Kennedy end up uh, end up getting moved. And again, we all do think that he is going to get moved. Um, I look, I, I go back to the Royals too, as another interesting team, because, you know, they haven't really, they haven't, they had that, what was it, maybe a month or so run when Josh Stallmont was uh, locking things down in the ninth inning, but then he went on the IL. Since he's been back, he hasn't been particularly effective, and they really haven't even been using him in super high leverage situations. They've been turning to Greg Holland as their closer, and he's been mostly good, did blow a save just yesterday, but he's been mostly good. Would have to imagine they're going to get calls on Greg Holland. Scott Barlow's maybe been their best reliever all season long, but they haven't really shown a willingness to use him as a starter or as a really as a closer excuse me with any sort of consistency or really any sort of interest in it whatsoever this is another team that I look at because I feel like this is a this is a situation where they're going to be moving relievers out and there is not a set closer just yet but if Greg Holland does end up going on the move I think Scott Barlow is someone who maybe is worth uh, speculating on right now. At least Barlow is good enough when he's not getting saves to make an impact in a lot of leagues. I, I think that yeah. was part of the appeal for me back during draft season. This was one of the more difficult closer committees to break down three months ago, and I don't know if a whole lot has changed. I, I still think Stelmont is the guy that, when healthy, is 
their most likely long-term closer if they're settling on one. Uh, several years of control left. Stuff's really good. Um, but I, I do think Barlow has some appeal, as you mentioned. The Tigers situation, I mean, Michael Fulmer seems like a certainty to get traded. I wonder if some of these teams that have been mixing and matching will just do that less simply because they won't have as many arms they trust in the second half of the season. You should mix and match early in the year when you're a non-contending team. But once you get to August and September, if you only have one or two really good high-leverage relievers left, like your young guys for the future, shouldn't you give them as many eighth and ninth inning opportunities as possible? Like In that case, Gregory Soto is probably the guy that I'd still want. Whereas like right now, with Fulmer there, He's very Soto's very borderline for me in ten and twelve team leagues. If Fulmer's gone, I think Soto creeps back up into that range. You know, another couple of interesting teams to look at is that as bad as both Pittsburgh and Miami have been, they've had two of the most stable closer situations all season. But I don't think Yimi Garcia or Richard Rodriguez are going to be part of contending teams in Miami and Pittsburgh, respectively. So those are two guys who are also going to be, I think, very popular uh, among GMs who are calling Miami and Pittsburgh over these next couple of weeks. Anyone on either of those teams interesting to you as a potential closer speculation candidate? Kyle Crick, I think, is a little closer to the ninth inning right now in Pittsburgh than David Bednar, but those are the two guys that I'm, I'm watching as the, the next option's up if Rodriguez gets dealt. Miami's situation is a little harder for me. It's a little bit like Kansas City, just with fewer fewer candidates. I wasn't on Anthony Bass to begin the season. I was kind of one foot in on Yimi Garcia, and even, even that's not something I feel great about, but you know, Dylan Floro to me is just kind of just a guy. Uh, Anthony Bender maybe is the guy. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's now made 19 appearances this season without allowing an earned run. That should get us pretty excited. 23 to 5 strikeout to walk ratio for him. I think he'd be kind of the the lower key, hasn't really done the job before speculative stash I'd want to have a week prior to the deadline because I, yeah. I think Garcia is a very strong bet to get moved. Yeah, he he has to be, and so does Richard Rodriguez. I mean, Richard Rodriguez has been you know pretty good this season too. So I, I would imagine that he is someone who is very attractive and probably loses his fantasy value uh, in leagues that are saves only. Because I would imagine that any contending team that acquires him, I mean, if you just look at all the contending teams, like. They're doing all right in the bullpen, and it feels as though any contending team that's going to pony up for Richard Rodriguez maybe is going to be using him more as a setup man. But it's it's an interesting discussion to consider, and it's something uh, that we're going to be looking at a lot, frankly, in the fantasy world over the next, again, what we got, five weeks or so until the trade deadline. And that's something that is going to be this undercurrent of discussion, something that's always in the back of our minds as we are talking about everything else that we always talk about in the fantasy baseball world. But we've talked about plenty of fantasy baseball for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. So we are going to call it a show here. Uh, of course, you can still get in the door, $3.99 a month. Go to the Athletic dot com slash fantasy baseball podcast to do so for Derek Van Riper for our guests Maria Torres and James Fegan I am Michael Beller DVR and I are back with you on Sunday for our waiver and fab episode that one of course will be live so be sure to look for a link to that join us live on our YouTube channel and send us any questions you might have we'll be happy to take them in that show until then have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon Thank you.